Now turn with me this morning again to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 18 right through to verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 22. Find the place we read from the Holy Scriptures. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits <coughs> in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, for in few that his eight souls were saved by water. The like figure were unto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, being made subject unto him. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter <coughs> chapter 3, verses 19, really through to verse 22. And my subject today is suffering through a sovereign Christ. Or if you want another title, Behold the Greatest Sovereign in the World. Now in these final few verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle sets forth a series of glorious gospel truths regarding our Lord Jesus Christ. These truths relate to his life, death and resurrection to glory. These verses, I believe, help explain and underscore the heart of the gospel. These verses exalt the person and work of Christ. And thirdly, they provide encouragement for tried and tested believers. Remember these believers to whom Peter was writing, they are suffering much because they are followers of Jesus Christ. They have endured and are facing verbal and physical abuse for righteousness sake, all because they are identified with Christ. And the question begs to be asked, is there anything that will dispel spiritual cardice and anything that will instill a spirit of spiritual courage? And the answer to the question is, Yes, there is. What is it? And the answer, of course, is a sight of the sovereign Christ. Every Christian, born again of the Spirit of God, washed in the precious blood, saved by free and sovereign grace, let's remember that we serve a suffering Savior who is absolutely sovereign in his own right. Now, last week, we dealt with verse 18. And I headed the message, Behold the greatest sufferer in the world. Now, this week we could follow on from that 
And we could say now, behold the greatest sovereign in the world. Who is the greatest sovereign in the world? Oh, if we ask certain historians, they might talk about Alexander the Great. They might even talk about uh, a man called Genghis Khan uh, to do with uh, Mongolia and his battle against the Chinese. If we think about the United Kingdom, some might even say, oh, I believe that Green Victoria uh, was the greatest monarch or sovereign in the world. But I want to say this morning that the greatest sovereign in the world is not Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, or Queen Victoria, or or any other earthly monarch. The greatest sovereign in the world is Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying to these people who are suffering, and suffering much for the sake of Christ and the gospel, he's really saying to them, in your suffering, get your eyes on the sovereign. Fill your mind with him. Think of the little hymn this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth, they will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, as I have looked at these verses, read them over, tried to study them, there's three things that I want to set before you today. I want you to think firstly of the errors to be avoided. Look with me at verse 19 and verse 20 and 21. You see, these three verses are clouded in much controversy. And these three verses have been the subject of much misguided interpretation and even false teaching. And I have no doubt that as you read them this morning, as you heard them read here in the house of God, you're probably saying to yourself, well, there are things in these verses that are difficult to understand. And that is true. And because they're difficult to understand, certain teachers have produced some very strange, unscriptural nonsense about them. I've asked myself as I've read them, as I do many scriptures, what does this mean? What does this teach to me? How does this apply to me? And as I have read the verses and reread them, I've asked myself, what do they teach us about Christ? Or what are they saying to us? Now, let me point out that there's two errors taught about these verses. One error is that Christ himself, after his bodily resurrection from the dead, descended into hell to preach the gospel to the spirits that were being held prisoner there. It is suggested from verse 19 that after the death and resurrection of Christ, he descended literally into hell. What for? Some argue to announce his victory and triumph over the devil and all the powers of darkness. In other words, he was going to taunt them. He was going to say, look at me now, fellas. What do you think of me? You thought you had the victory. I'm the victor. Another thought is to offer a second chance to all who have died and gone to hell. Thirdly, To preach the way of salvation 
to, to offer really a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Some believe that this is a genuine offer of salvation. So if you get the thought, here's this alleged teaching, and the Lord Jesus, either before or after his resurrection, has gone into this place that the Bible calls hell, and, and says, who would like to get out of here? Be like going into prison and saying, who would like to get out of here? I have power to release you. Sure, everybody would be out, wouldn't they? And then we'd be into the doctrine of universalism. The big question is, did the Lord Jesus go into this place and preach the way of salvation, offer a get-out-of-jail-free card, a genuine offer, and release those imprisoned and bring them into paradise, getting out of hell into heaven? Some people, of course, look at the verses and say, well, okay, we understand what you're saying. It's limited to the soul's in Noah's day, it's really to do with that era and that generation who died and, and refused to get into the ark and, and they ended up in hell and, and they're given a second chance and, and a second opportunity to be saved. Now, now, let me make it abundantly clear this morning. I do not believe that the Lord Jesus descended into hell after he died on the cross or after his bodily resurrection, not for any time, and not for any purpose. And of course you're maybe thinking already, like I did, what about the Apostles' Creed? He descended into hell. Let's remember that word hell means Hades, and it can, as we could prove rightly from the Scriptures, be a reference to the grave. Psalm 16, for example, Thou will not leave my soul in hell is a reference to the grave. Look at verse 18. Look at the last word. What's the last word? It's the word spirit. And notice it's got a capital. And it's a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. By which also he went, that that's a reference to the Spirit of God, and preached unto the spirits in prison. The idea, the concept, the thought is that by or in the power of the Spirit of God, the um, Lord Jesus was preached to sinners in the days of Noah. In other words, Christ's gospel was preached by Noah in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was that self-same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And the reference really is to the preaching of Noah. In his day, he preached the gospel of Christ. And he did so in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did so to those who were disobedient sinners. Christ didn't descend into hell, neither in spirit or in body. Christ didn't taunt men in hell with the news of his triumph. Christ didn't offer a second chance or offer a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, that's an error to preach that. And here's an error to be avoided. Here's a second error. If you look at verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Here's the second error, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. See, people just read the word baptism here and think 
Um, here's the way to be saved. All you need is the application of the water, a few drops or a, a, a large amount. And um, that's all that's needful and necessary in order to be saved. But, but let's make it clear, even as the text makes clear, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. You see, it's not baptism that cleanses us from sin. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. The blood of Christ shed for rebels and sinners. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, received through faith alone. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And we're not saved by baptism. Let's make that abundantly clear. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to reject this doctrine of baptismal regeneration. We have to say this is an error. And that's not what the text is teaching. And that's not what Peter's teaching, we're saved by virtue of our union with Christ. Now, 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 let's put it together. Let's go back to verse 18. He says, uh, the last sentence, being put to death in the flesh. There's Christ died. Notice his resurrection, but quickened by the Spirit. And whenever he mentions, then there's a, a sort of parenthesis. Then there's a, a, a digression of thought. And in these three verses, 19, 20 and 21, I could have, if I wanted to, have taken the time to commence a mini-series of four or five sermons. I've got a booklet in the study, some of those boxes, I remember it, uh, written by or penned by... Uh, someone who had recorded uh, the late Pastor Willie Mullen preaching in this portion of scripture, and it's about 30 pages long. And whenever I read the verses and reread the verses, what the thought came into my mind was this, don't lose sight of Christ. Because even though there's a parenthesis and a digression here, mentioning that the same spirit was in Noah, who, who, who preached the gospel of Christ to disobedient sinners in his day, never lose sight of Christ. If you look at verse 22, he's mentioned again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so there's Christ dead, Christ quickened by the Spirit, and then you have Christ raised. Look at verse 22, who has gone into heaven who is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers been made subject unto him. Now, now think of the gospel. See, that, that's the heart that's being taught here. Christ died. Christ resurrected from the dead. How? He's been quickened by the Spirit. Uh, Christ raised triumphant to God's right hand. Christ sovereign now. You see, the great emphasis in the New Testament is on these few truths. There is much emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. Christ sent on a mission of mercy. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. There's the doctrine of the incarnation and his virgin birth. Christ sinless. He, he kept the law of God perfectly. 
He never sinned in thought and word. Indeed, Christ suffered in a real human body. He, he was literally crucified. He, he, he died a horrible, agonizing death. It says here being put to death in the flesh. And then we have Christ resurrected. Bodily, he, he's been raised from the dead. But you know, the resurrection isn't just about Christ coming back to life. It's not a, just about Christ's victory over death and the devil uh, and defeating sin in the grave. Christ's resurrection, now listen to me carefully, is also a public declaration by God. It's an announcement by God the Father that he had accepted Christ's once and for all sacrifice for sin. Christ finished the work God the Father gave him to do. God the Father approved that work. And the proof was he raised him from the dead. And the tomb is empty. The Bible says he was um, uh, offered for our uh, offences and raised again for our justification. Now, Now, get the thought. God the Father planned the whole plan of redemption. God the Son executed and fulfilled the plan. But his death didn't and could not defeat the Saviour. His crucifixion was not the end. The grave couldn't hold him. Christ rose again for us. Christ is seated for us. He's at God's right hand. He's in absolute sovereign control. The suffering saviour has become the sovereign saviour. That's why I said, behold, the greatest sovereign in the world. So, in a few minutes, I've set before you four or five sermons encapsulating two main errors that are propagated today uh, by some that, that really uh, takes away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind Christ died, Christ rose again, Christ is raised to God's right hand. That's the thrust of Peter's argument. Notice something else here in the text. Not only errors to be avoided, but an exultation to be announced. If you look with me at verse 22, it says, Who has gone into heaven... And is on the right hand of God. Now notice his position. Notice his place. And then we'll think about his power. Notice his place. Who has gone into heaven. Where is Christ today? He's in heaven. Notice his position. He's on the right hand of God. You see... Peter's thinking about Christ. And there's two aspects of his person and work that stand out to Peter, and it's this, his suffering and his glory. If we were to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 25, for example, as a passage I would encourage you to read, Peter remembers preaching in the day of Pentecost. Those are the two themes, Christ's (laughs) death and Christ's resurrection from the dead. This was a constant theme. Turn over there to Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. He's preaching again and it's the same theme. He says this. Be it known unto you all. 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. You see, this is the same thing. And remember, he's writing to help, and he's writing to comfort and encourage God's people. Now turn from Acts chapter 4 verse 10 back to Peter. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. Did you notice how he links it up at the end of verse 18? Where he tells us, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And then we'll link up the words in verse 21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the same thing. Suffering and glory. Maybe we could put it in a slightly different way if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. It brings it out very clear. The elders which are among you I resort, who am also an elder, and an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Now can you see the theme? The suffering of Christ. That's a real fact. But the sufferings of Christ did not last forever. The sufferings of Christ were followed by Christ entering into glory. And here's an exaltation to be announced. Who has gone into heaven. That's the place where he went to after his bodily resurrection. There was a time when Christ left heaven. A time when Christ came to earth. A time when Christ finished the work that God the Father had given him to do. And once the work was completed, afterwards, he returned to heaven. I want you to grasp that. If you look at what happened in the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, you have this truth. These are the two angels that came to disciples, and they said... Verse 11, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? They were looking up into the sky. This same <coughs> Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Notice three times the word heaven is mentioned. And here in verse 22 of 1 Peter 3, the word heaven is mentioned. And of course, it's the, the abode of God that that is in view and having returned to heaven what's his position now here's the answer and is on the right hand of God now let me just read a couple of verses to you from the Psalms in Psalm 24 we read and this is the thought behind our first hymn this morning in Psalm 24, verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory <coughs> shall come in. <coughs> Who is this King of glory? Here's the answer. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. And that means think about that. 
Think about the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord who has fought a battle and won the victory. And is now victorious and triumphant. In Psalm 110, we learn what happens when he returns to heaven victorious. We're given an insight into a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Christ was told to sit at God's right hand. That's the place of majesty, the place of glory, the place of victory. So so here's an exaltation that, that Peter announces. And what does it mean? Let me just say very quickly, this is an exalted position. God's right hand. God remembers a spirit and he has no bodily parts. So it's not an exact location. It's not a specific spot or site. It's not a particular area. The, the, the idea is it's a position of honour, of approval, of dignity, of majesty, of power. The right hand in the Bible is always the working hand. It's always the hand or usually the hand that holds the weapon. And the right hand was always associated with the highest authority. Think of it. Christ is invited by the Father to sit at his right hand. That is, he's given the place of highest authority, the place of supreme power and sovereignty. There's a time when Christ was in a state of humiliation. He was despised and rejected. A time he was deserted on Mount Calvary. Remember, even Peter followed afar off. The rest of the disciples fled as they smote the shepherd. There was none of the angels in attendance on Mount Calvary. Even the father turned away his face from the son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If we were to examine Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 8, we would see at least seven steps of Christ's humiliation. But we come to verse verse 9, and it says, Wherefore, meaning in light of this, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He was once crowned with thorns. You're aware of that. But he's now crowned with a tara of glory. Once he died. Once he was buried. Once he was resurrected bodily from the dead. Once he was raised to heaven. And now he's afforded the highest place there. It's an exalted possession. Notice also in it's an exclusive possession. No one but Christ sits with God the Father at his right hand. You see, over in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, we're told an amazing truth, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and holding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty and high. See, he sat down because the work was completed. And he was invited to sit down by the Father who approved of the work. Let me link it up. Verse 13. It says, But the which of the angels said he at any time, Sit in my right hand. 
until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Here's a quotation you see from Psalm 110. And, and here it is, and Peter or Paul's using it as an argument. Not one of the angels was invited to sit at God's right hand. This invitation and request was given to Christ and Christ alone. And he alone could occupy that place of the highest station in heaven. And it was his by his obedience to the Father. In the great eternal covenant of redemption between Father and Son, Christ pledged to come into the world and do the Father's will. Pledged to live a sinless life, to die a vicarious substitutionary death. Christ fulfilled the terms of the covenant perfectly and completely. He didn't fail. He didn't turn back despite all the forces of hell that was arrayed against him. Despite living a life of intense suffering, the Bible tells us in Philippians 2, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, in light of this, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. In Isaiah 50, he testifies that he didn't turn back. So, in light of his obedience, God exalted him. This was the reward for his humiliation. This was an exclusive possession. Aye, and it's an eternal possession. Kings come and go. We're familiar with history. Queens live and die. Where's Queen Victoria now? Where's Alexander the Great? Where's Genghis Khan? See the best of rulers. They live, they die, and they're gone. But let me tell you this morning, Jesus Christ is a king forever. He's a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. He's a prophet forever. Like Melchizedek, he had no beginning of days nor end of days. Therefore, he's no need of, of a successor. Christ is on the throne eternally. Where is Christ today? Take this into your mind. He's not in the tree. He's not in the tomb. He's on the throne. He's in heaven. Glory to God. But he's not just in heaven. Think of his position. He's on the throne at the Father's right hand. And that's an exalted, exclusive, eternal position. Notice something else. Notice his power. Look at the verse 22. It says, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. See, Jesus Christ is not a powerless saviour. He's not a passive saviour. He is all-powerful. He is now and always has been the supreme sovereign of the universe. We call him in Revelation King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A king, according to Psalm 110, with a scepter in his hand. He has got the right and the authority to rule. Chosen by the Father, to be the supreme ruler over the whole earth. You think of the essence of his power. It's unlimited. It can't be curtailed. He's the supreme ruler. The highest of the highest. The greatest sovereign in the world. 
And if we were called for who is the greatest sovereign in the world, the answer would be the king of glory, the one who is strong and mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts is his name. And oh, wouldn't kings of the earth love to have unlimited power? All power, he said, is given unto me. Think of its extent. He mentions here just three uh, parties, three different words. He mentions angels. There's the heavenly bodies. He mentions authorities. He mentions powers. The word powers has to do with, with mighty individuals, mighty forces. The word authorities has to do with those that are, are, are in the highest stations of the land. We think of kings and queens. We think of those that you and I probably don't rub shoulders with or maybe we just read about and hear about, but, but we don't have any intimate personal relationship with. But you know, the angels in heaven and the authorities on the earth and the powers that be, the, the rulers and the magistrates and the judges, they're all subject to Christ. You see, his unlimited power that can't be curtailed extends to them all. Think of not only the extent of his power, but think of the endlessness of his power. It never ends. He always has reigned supreme and as a sovereign. And he always will. Isn't it uh, tremendous to know that uh, Christ is exalted, as the Bible tells us, um, far above all. And isn't that what we read over there in the uh, book of Ephesians? Uh, Paul takes up this theme of Christ's exaltation. Uh, and he says... He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. That he might fill all things. You see, as I examined this passage and tried to think of Christ, I thought of these errors that must be avoided. I thought of this exaltation that has to be announced. The place that Christ has gone to, the position that he has, the power that he, he, he knows. And one final thing. There's an encouragement to be accepted. You see, why did Peter write this? How did this impact on the lives of his hearers? And how does it impact on our lives now in the 21st century? Remember, he's writing to first century people who are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ, verbal and physical abuse. They, they, they ignore fiery trials. And what's he saying to them? He's saying to them, as exactly as I said in the introduction, get your eyes on Christ. Remember this, Christ died. Christ is resurrected. Christ is raised to heaven. Christ is at the Father's right hand. Think of Christ's rule. All now are subject to him. And if that's true about the angels and the authorities and the powers that be, then that also includes our lives as well. We're subject to him. Have you bowed the knee to him? 
Have you come and owned your sinnership and embraced his saviourhood and trusted him as Lord and saviour? And not only does it include the fact that we're subject to him, but every aspect of our lives is subject to him. All our affairs, all the big things and all the small things. You see, Christ is not just sovereign over the worldwide issues. But he's absolutely sovereign over the smallest details of our lives. We're we're just like clay in his hand. And can the potter not do with the clay whatever he desires and designs for it? And that's humbling. Isn't it? That's sometimes hard to understand. You add this in to the trials and troubles that we face. The difficulties we experience as Christians. Even in the land of Ulster, thinking what has happened recently about the Asher Bakery case. Think about the prosecution of Pastor McConnell starting in September over comments that he made about um, Islam, a a false satanic religion. And how do we cope with that? Let's remember this, that not only are we subject to Christ, and all the affairs of our lives, big and small, are under his sovereign control, But he's there for us. At God's right hand as our king, as our prophet, our priest. And he's there to benefit the people of God. Oh yes, we we have no strength and power for own. We can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I can't cope with this. I can't take it anymore. But you know, because we're in union with him. Because we've received him as Lord and Savior. His power can become our power. And he shares his power with us. He gives us strength to cope. Remember he said to his disciples. All power is given unto me. Therefore go. And preach the gospel. Remember Paul could say. I can do all things through Christ. That's some boast isn't it. Which strengtheneth me. See I can do all things. That's an idle boast. But when we add in the words. Through Christ. He's the source of our power. And then he throws in the word, which strengtheneth me. That's what Christ does. And not only do we share his strength, but you know, one day we're going to share in his glory. His place in heaven guarantees your place. One day you'll be there. Where he is, there we will be also. His position in glory guarantees our position in him in glory by virtue of being in union with him one day we'll be with Christ one day we'll be seated in the heavenlies with Christ yes we don't know what tomorrow will bring we don't know what the rest of the year will unfold we we don't know what valley of tears will come what heartaches and what headaches We'll all experience. But here's the encouragement from this. An encouragement that has to be accepted and embraced. We know who Christ is. We know where Christ is. We know what Christ is doing there. He's at the Father's right hand for our benefit. Now let me finish with this. What do you need this morning? Do you need help and strength to cope whatever your difficulties and trials are? Where are you going to get that strength and help? 
You'll not get it from your own self. You'll not get it from others, although you'll have family and you'll have friends that will sympathise and empathise. But the greatest benefactor is Christ. You need a guarantee that you're going to make it to heaven. Maybe you're worried and scared. I'll never be in heaven. Uh, 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 this and that comes up. Your, your own sins arise to haunt you. Look away to Christ. Look to his cleansing blood. You, you need answers for this mad world that we live in. And you try to make sense of and understand it all. And how could men pontificate in this issue? And how, how could judges make that judgment? Remember, they're all subject to Christ. Maybe we need assistance for the work of God here. How can we know answers to prayer for souls to be saved and families to be brought in and finance <coughs> to be raised and the building <coughs> to go forward? You see, it has to be Christ. Only Christ and always Christ. And without Christ, it'll not be accomplished. And there's the encouragement. I leave this passage with you. We've come to the end of First Peter chapter 3. We'll probably not return to it uh, for a little while. We'll, we'll have a break. That's why I didn't want to preach a mini-series really on those errors to be avoided. But if you want to come and talk to me about it, <coughs> if the passage <coughs> complicates and bombards your mind, then I'll be quite happy to uh, try and explain it to you if I can. But what I say this morning is this. Let's get our eyes in Christ in that exalted place and position and power. And let's take this promise to our heart. He's there to benefit us together. He's there to benefit me. <coughs> Glory to God. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to our heart today.